podcast this week, we chat directing and dinosaurs with Jurassic World Dominion star Bryce Dallas Howard. All that and more on the movie podcast that once started a religion inspired by our love of the character played by Paul Bettany in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes, folks, our movement was based on fission. Nothing? Not even a little... (laughs) Maybe a little flicker. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, due to a workload and schedule that Satan himself has described as a little on the hellish side, we're recording this podcast as late as time will allow. Friday morning, it is now quarter past nine on Friday, the 10th of June. And as a result, as you can hear, we're doing this remotely and not in the great depressing pod booth. Not our preference. We like to be in the pod booth, but we are where we are. Uh, this week, I am joined by just two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Helen O'Hara is still gallivanting around somewhere, no doubt, on some kind of super yacht with a, an oil billionaire or two. Uh, you know Helen. <laughs> so we're a little light on the hellish side as well. But don't worry, folks. Great big fucking herb James Dyer is here. Hello. Hello, James. <laughs> How are you? I am okay. I'm, 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 a little, I'm a little sleepy. I'm a little, you know, like discombobulated i've like rolled out of bed and just sat in front of a monitor so that's uh you know hi uh we're also joined by the best dressed man in film journalism brackets watford division unless you count all the journalists who go to the harry potter tour at leaveston or indeed any journalists who do set visits at leaveston do you remember set visits they were fun weren't they, they were you know, fun. in the before times the dark times before, before the, empire. the empire amon warman is here Hello, I'm a morning person, so I feel so, you know, I've been, I've been awake for like, since what, five, six, for some reason. Really? What, what, what is wrong with you? <laughs> what do you do? What's your morning routine, Amon? What do you do? Do you get up and you go, oh, what a beautiful morning, and then just dance around? No, but I should. <laughs> <laughs> what is my routine? I don't really have a routine. I've I... seen your routine. You are not busy. <laughs> Is it Mark Wahlberg esque? Is it a workout and then yeah. followed by a squeezing grapefruit? And then- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, typically I uh, go to YouTube and look at some NBA highlights. I um, thought wow. this was going to go in a different direction when you said that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, so just to be clear, just because so you get up about five or six because you're a freak. What time do you go to bed? That varies. Um, typically around uh, ten p.m. Mark, but if there's like a screening which I'm coming home from. So maybe it's a little bit later than that. I see. So you are very much a lark, not an owl. This is this is interesting yeah. to me. Yeah. I don't think I've been to bed before midnight in oh before you were born. Um, <laughs> before you were born. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, I'm I'm burning the candle at both ends. A moment. I was in I was uh, asleep about one a.m. last night, and I woke up about six. But then I, I rolled back to sleep because my body just went nope. You're you're, you're not having it. You get the next went, hour. Nope. There's a new trailer, and you need to go and watch that. <laughs> Except I can't watch it because I hear it's spoilerific. Uh, I I don't want to watch it. I want to go into that movie as clean as I possibly can. Big note. Scrubbed in all areas. Uh, Anyway. I mean, it's good. I'm sure our listeners are very much enjoying the uh, breakdown of our morning routines. It's not quite Wahlberg-esque or Rock-esque for that matter. But perhaps we could, you know, perhaps (laughs) we could insert some more, you know, protein consumption and I don't know. I'm pretty sure the Rock wakes up and he's like, the hierarchy of power in the DC universe. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, change. the balance of power has shifted. I am awake. <laughs> oh, was there a Black Adam trailer as well? There was, was, yeah. yeah. Uh, you, if, if, you ca- if you can't find it, just Google 1996 and you'll probably find it around there. <laughs> oh, so. oh, 
shots fired. Oh, shots oh fired. my god. Oh my god. All right. Well, listen. We'll be discussing. The, well, clearly, I haven't seen Black Adam or the Nope trailer. Uh, but we'll be discussing what Amon and James think of them later on in the news section. But for now, this is the listener question section. What a segue. Uh, and I sent out a panicked shout out about 20 minutes before we start recording for some questions because I, I, I thought the ones we had in stock uh, might be better suited for when there's four of us because there's some big old mehi chats that I'd, I'd like to get into. Um, <laughs> Always nice to get into a big old meaty chat. Uh, so, uh, all right. So we had a number of questions sent in by people who responded to the panicked shout out. <laughs> I think there was one I saw where it said, given that Helen isn't here, we should discuss Chris Helen's hottest, hottest moment, <laughs> which is quite funny. Oh, that's funny. That is funny. Uh, okay. Should we do it? Uh, what's the most, uh, what's, what's the most attractive Chris Evans film moment? This comes from writing freak 88. I mean, it's all in either Infinity War or Endgame. Infinity War, he has the beard. I feel it's really unfair to be doing this question without Helen here. No, uh, this is exactly why we're doing it. Right, okay. Uh, she snooze, she lose. That's right. Uh, I mean, it's the beard. I think, what, the, I think the saddest moment, perhaps, in you know, sexual history on uh, in cinema is when you just get that cut of Cap putting the razor down on the side of the sink <laughs> in Endgame. And you're like, what have you done? What have you done? They missed a real trick. I mean, this could have been its own one shot where he, where he just shaves the beard. I mean, my assumption at that point is that he was shaving the beard so that it could assist him independently bolstering their number to what, fight like, the threat. Like the stranger's cloak. 100%, yeah. So Cap's beard then, as because we all know that is the source of all his power, that his beard would then become the next Avenger. Sharon Carter's not even in this podcast. (laughs) That's what should have happened when uh, Wong said, what you wanted more? It should have cut to a shot of the beard. Yeah, the beard comes flying in. (laughs) See, you think Mjolnir is going to cap, but actually it flies past him and just gets surrounded by little bits of bristle. The beard has the hammer. When cap at the end goes, Avengers... Assemble. The beard should have just flown onto his yeah. face. Yes. Yeah, a bit like Venom. It just sort of slurps into existence like a symbiote and cakes the bottom of his face. Cats up, Steve. <laughs> I too am a loser, Um, I think the moment where he comes to Vision and Scarlet Witch's aid in Infinity War. Very, very cool. Very, very hot. Also in... <laughs> Emerging, emerging from the shadows. Yes, and you get that moment. There's a couple of moments in, in in Infinity War where he emerges from somewhere. Um, yeah. Oh, actually, one of them is when Thor appears in Wakanda. When Thor yeah. appears in Wakanda, and you get like a moment where everyone's like, "Oh, hello! Oh, who's this turned up? What's what's he done with his hair?" But there's a moment when you know, yes, <laughs> he emerges from the shadows, and you see Wanda going, "Oh my God, it's Steve! Like we're safe." But it's just like, that's like everybody in the audience going swoon <laughs> that moment. Yeah. Doesn't he look good, folks? Yeah. I was there that night. I was there the night that shot was shot. Although while they were shooting that shot, I think we were in a room at Edinburgh Waverley train station talking to someone else, presumably Paul Bettany uh, mm-hmm. or Lizzie Olsen or Anthony Mackie. Cool. So there you go. Missed, <laughs> I missed the actual shooting of that shot. Oh, yeah, but I think that was probably for the best because like, much like the Ark of the Covenant, if you stare into it, you will die. <laughs> so yeah. I, I'm going to throw in another couple of uh, hot Chris Evans moments. Uh, so I, there's obviously the moment in The First Avenger when he has been uh, transformed magically. The fire, <laughs> the super soldier serum, 
and uh, some fighter rays, of course. Don't forget that, <laughs> that magical combination. Uh, otherwise, we'd all be doing it. Uh, oh, and he's transformed from scrawny, crap CG Steve to uh, super hunky, abzed up, you know, yeah. six months down the gym, Chris Evans, Steve, and Hayley Atwell, um, as Peggy Carter, can't resist just touching his his chest very, very quickly, just reaching out to make sure that he's real, which is problematic, <laughs> Peggy. <laughs> Problematic, and mm-hmm. Peggy Carter, I'm afraid to say, has been cancelled as a result. Fair. In fact, Agent Carter would go on several years later to be cancelled. <laughs> what goes around comes around, Peggy. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and the other moment that that springs to mind. Well, there's there's two. Why do I have a list? <laughs> Why is it laminated? <laughs> Uh, there's the moment in Civil War when he's. Mm. <laughs> there's a moment in Civil War when he's grabbing a helicopter, yeah. and it's like the ultimate flex. That's oh, that's a big yes. moment. Yes, yeah. yes. He goes yes. full Arnold. Yeah. I seem yeah. to remember people in my row uh, emitting a very loud and peculiar noise when they saw that scene, and I looked around <laughs> to see who it was, and then I realised it was me. Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then, of course, there's a moment in um, Age of Ultron where he's having his little yeah. brouhaha with Tony while he's. Well, whilst while he's whilst they're chopping uh, logs, oh and, yes, and, and and it's a moment when Steve Rogers gets wood and he just rips a log. We've in all half. done it. We've, We've all done, done it. it. We've yeah. all tried to do it. Since. We've all tried to do it. Yeah, that is an incredible moment. It's just ridiculous. I would say if we're gonna in because you know this this podcast needs to be balanced as all things should be, and uh, I think you're going to- Thanos's hottest <laughs> moments. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the other end of the scale, the least hot Chris Evans moment is coming later this year in a film by the Russo brothers as well. Uh, the Grey Man. Obviously, people will have seen the trailer for this, but uh, he is sporting, I would say, he's sporting a decent wardrobe. I'm on, I'm sure you would concur. He's well tailored. I, I do concur. But he has douche, major, major big douchebag energy, uh, finished <laughs> off by a very, very upsetting moustache. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I think this, it is the cure. I think it's like, it's like you know... Um, uh, it's like the Wim Hof method, isn't it? Like you go go into the the heat of Endgame and then go straight into the chilly, freezing waters of uh, of the Grey Man for a different kind of kind of uh, Chris Evans energy. But if Helen were here, she would say that she it's Steve Rogers she finds hot, not Chris Evans, who obviously is objectively an attractive man. Mm-hmm. But you know, you look at his filmography, and there might be something to that because you know he's he's obviously been very attractive in a lot of <laughs> a lot of movies. But hotness, I like you know, as in steamy moments, I'm not so sure. Well, Fantastic Four, Fantastic, no, there's, no. yeah, there's a literal hot and steamy moment. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true, literally. When he uses his powers to um, drive himself off in the presence of a attractive woman, um, so yeah, problematic again. <laughs> and uh, Johnny Storm has now been cancelled. Yeah, uh, all of them have been cancelled. But I'm looking at you know he's he's obviously. <laughs> He's obviously attractive in The Losers, but is there a hot moment? I don't know. He's attractive in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, but is there a hot moment? I don't know. I, I'm sure there's a film we could find, I don't know, who something by Paul McGuigan at a push. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on. Come on. I mean, that's not even a good entry, but, you know, puns will it's what not. puns will. P- yeah, puns, puns are. I've got my knives out for that pun, James. Based on the movie uh, Push by Paul McGuigan. <laughs> is he is he hot in Knives Out? No. Oh, I don't know. He's rocking that knitwear. Like he's sailor mm-hmm. hot there, isn't he? He's just yeah. just come in from hauling in the catch and then 
Yeah. yeah. Cable knitwear. I'm, you can't go wrong with that. No. Yeah. But I think the moments where he's objectified most are yeah. actually all in the MCU. Yeah. So, without a doubt. Yeah. There without you go. He is America's ass. <laughs> <laughs> Helen is going to love hearing this. Uh, that's, of course, if she listens to the podcast, which I strongly suspect she doesn't. Uh, so, uh, let's have one more question because we only spent a couple of minutes on that one. Uh, there are loads of good questions, but one that I immediately looked at and now have lost. No, wait, here it is. This comes from Ben Tompkins, at B Tompkins on the old Twitter machines. I recently had the pleasure of watching Moonfall and Morbius on the same day. Moonfall! (laughs) How are you still alive? (laughs) How is your brain not mulled? The two greatest films of our age in one day. How? How did you do it? Uh, Anyway, the question goes on, and it had me wondering, what does a film have to do to get one star from you? And this is a very, very good question uh, indeed, uh, because quite frankly, I would have given Moonfall very close to zero stars myself. <laughs> we gave Moonfall two stars. We gave Morbius two stars. I'm in the Morbius is a low three camp. What? You know it. Wow. You know that's, it. That's oh, no, 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 no. I've, just, I've heard that out loud. I'm in the Morbius <laughs> is a high two camp, but still a high two. Nope. If, still I, a two. if I reviewed Morbius for Empire, that would have been the first... One star review that I've written really? for Empire. You don't have it in you, Amon Woman. You have one. you have so it's... much light in your heart. You could not have done it <laughs> for some reason. I still don't know why. I haven't revisited it since, but I gave Six Underground two stars, and that was probably a mistake. <laughs> See, that is a film I would have given one star to. Yeah, I loathed Six Underground. I, it was it was almost physically painful for me to sit through Six Underground. Uh, but then again, you know, we all get things wrong in reviews. I've got things wrong. I don't know whether anyone's noticed, but I gave Attack of the Clones mm. five stars. Uh, James <laughs> has got things wrong. He gave Passengers four stars. Amon <laughs> has got things wrong. He gave uh, the Adam Sandler basketball movie Hustle three stars uh, when it should have been four. We'll talk about that later on, Amon. <laughs> okay. We'll have a little chat, you and I. But one star, one star means that it has to be truly inept on a mind-boggling level, which is why I'm still astonished we didn't give Moonfall one star, because nothing about that movie works. Nothing about it works. Not the acting, not the script, not the concept, not the direction, not the effects. <laughs> maybe the music, maybe. You know, it's just a disaster all around. Uh, but obviously, reviews at Empire, you know, we, we don't always get together in a big, in a big um, swimming pool and uh, and have a chat about them. Uh, so sometimes only one person will have seen a film, and like yeah, that, which was the case with Amon when he made his legendary mistake with Hustle uh, this week. <laughs> He was the first person, the only person to have seen that movie, and he went three stars. And then I saw it, and I was like, Amon is wrong and an idiot, and his feet should be held over the flames. But with Moonfall, I I saw it, I saw it after, I saw it after the Empire Review had come out, and I, I, you know, I think most of us did actually. And it's 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 a terrible movie. I think that's one we should have given one star to. I would have given one star as well to Independence Day Resurgence. Mm-hmm. And you know from discussions we've had in the podcast in the past, I would have given the first Suicide Squad movie one star also. <laughs> but it's it's a very rare instance that it happens. I don't do reviews that much these days. I've managed to somehow <laughs> put on my cloak of invisibility when reviews are handed <laughs> out. Um, or maybe it's just, would you give the guy who gave Attack of the Clones five stars a <laughs> review? Maybe it's just that. But... You also come to reviews, I think, with a little bit of, I don't know, generosity of spirit. You, you know, you want to, you want to, you want to see good things in movies. You want to try and accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative. And 
you know, latch on to the affirmative and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. You want to do all that sort of stuff. So it's a very, very rare day, I think, when you were moved to give a film one star. I've done it in the past. I've done it with Miss, Mrs. Brown's Boys, the movie. Fair. Uh, I've done it with Project X, a movie that appalled me so much. I wrote a 1,500-word <laughs> review when I was meant to write 100. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's generally, you know, a movie that sums up the decline of Western civilization in, in 90 minutes. But... By and large, if I see a really, really bad movie, I don't know. I think you'll still try and find something good enough in it to give it two stars. I think that's what happens from my point of view. What about you guys? I, I was just looking to see what I'd given one star to. I gave one star to Escape Plan 2, colon, Hades. Oh, that's, that's famously bad, so Which I think you're okay. A hateful film. I've also, I also gave one star to 2007 Hayden Christensen movie, Awake. A film by Joby Harold that I have absolutely no recollection of having watched. I'm watching the trailer silently now. I'm like, I dimly recall it, but I think it's one of these things where I was clearly so traumatized, I have just erased it from my memory. So Joby Harold, yeah, Joby Harold, yeah, that's a name I've not heard in a long time. So the guy, I didn't know, I've, I've, I hadn't made that connection that yeah. he has directed Hayden Christensen H- before. Just get Albers in it, and as I know, it is kind of coming back. He's got Terrence Howard in it too. I know that because I'm looking at IMDb, but uh, it's a bit where he like just get Howard plays his wife, and he goes uh, for heart surgery. It goes on the table, and then kind of wakes up during the anaesthetic and finds out the surgical team are trying to kill him. And it's, I mean, I I can't remember why it's so terrible because it was in 2007. I think I reviewed this, but. Um, mm. Yeah, it's bad. I nearly gave also gave, nearly gave one star to Need for Speed, and I was I was bullied into bumping it up a star <laughs> because people <laughs> thought that I was being harsh. Yeah, I think sometimes those sometimes one star has to be well, it almost has to be a universal thing. Uh, just universal movies, just none of the others. Just, just that yeah, one. Just yeah, universal yeah. movies. <laughs> yeah, uh, The Born Legacy should be given one star. I don't know why oh, that's a universal gosh. movie. <laughs> <laughs> but but there we are. But no, I think it should be because otherwise it can feel a little bit punitive at times. Yeah, um, it can. We have numerous reviewers at Empire, so I would give Independence Day two and Suicide Squad uh, one star. But we also have Dan Jolin, who you know, who gave both of those movies four stars. And then we have different people along along that spectrum as well. So there'll yeah. be people who give it three, people who give it two. But mm. so it's it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one to have a movie that everyone has agreed on that is that is one star. It's very, very rare. It is I rare. Would say. It is rare because normally, like it'll, it'll, like someone will find something redeeming, as you said about it, and say, "Oh, it's not that bad." And then Ben Travis will just walk in and be like, five, <laughs> it's five. It's five. It's five star film. It's five. Unless it's got to the King of the Monsters, in <laughs> yeah. which case this yeah. movie should be burned. Yeah. <laughs> this inexplicable movie, the only movie that has ever caused Ben Travis to turn feral. <laughs> A man who can find something good in Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> yeah. And King of the Monsters was his one star moment. It's like, yeah. what happened? <laughs> He's drawn a line in the sand. But I think, I think as a magazine, we gave one star to Taken. Wait, the first Taken. This what? is a, yeah. This is actually true. But I uh, and it was Dan again. Dan Captain <laughs> Captain Dan Prince of Wrongness. Um, yeah. And he got he got he got like nasty nasty feed like a lot of hate for that like proper yeah hate. he got a phone call going i don't know who you are <laughs> i don't know what you want that's a really vicious voicemail uh but yeah he got a lot of shit for that i wonder whether with that one i think it was maybe the politics of it that didn't sit well with him but uh it seems in retrospect that might have been a little hard. <laughs> what yeah. would it be a great film yeah, yeah. um i'm just but- looking back at my letterboxd and seeing what i've given one star or one and a half stars to so Fant Forstick, I gave one and a half um, on Letterboxd. Um, Which one was that? The Fant Forstick. What's that? What is that? 
Fantastic Four, the mouse teller, not the mouse, the, the, the Michael. Oh, that's Michael how you're saying it. Oh, yeah. okay. Stick. What? Four stick. What that's how it about? is on the poster. Yeah, that's how it is. Do you not remember? It's stylized in the poster as there's four is in the middle of fantastic. Yeah. So oh, fan I four see. stick. I yeah. see. Yeah. So okay. that, that's um, um, a good day to <laughs> die hard. One star. Oh yes. I would go with that. Yeah. I'd, I'd absolutely go with that. That is a one star clunker. Um, the watch, which was the Richard. Yeah. Richard Iwadi, Ben Stiller, yeah. John Hill, Vince Vaughn. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a little harsh, I would say, but, but comedy, comedy is something that could be really polarizing. Helen, for true? example, would give one star to the brothers Grimsby or Grimsby. I can't remember what its official title is over here. Um, whereas my rule of thumb is if something makes me belly laugh three or four times in the middle of a, you know, in the, in the course of a movie, then, you know, I have to give a five. <laughs> I can see how this Attack of the Clones thing happened because it's becoming Yeah, because I was belly laughing all the way through. Going, this is dreadful, <laughs> but I love it. I gave one star to Ultraviolet, which was Kurt Vimmer's follow-up to Equilibrium. And I can only Again. imagine it was because he fell so short of the lofty heights of oh, Equilibrium gosh. that I was just devastated. That's the only, only explanation. I would agree with that as well. How are you guys finding this, by the way? Rotten these, Tomatoes. These one-star reviews. <laughs> I'm looking at Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> oh, I didn't know you could do that. Okay, that's very clever. Uh, but yeah, the, the the two that spring to mind for me definitely are Project X and Mrs. Brown's Boys to Movie, which is just a horrific experience. And I think that's what it is. If you're watching something and it makes the, the skin on your body crawl and you... You, you want everyone involved with the movie to meet with some terrible <laughs> accident. Uh, I don't mean the, the people who are behind the movie. I mean, everyone in the movie as a character, you want them all to, you know, a, a horrible fate to befall them. Uh, then I think that's a, that's a one-star movie. When a movie has nothing going for it, that is when um, I bring out the, the knives, as it were. But I have not yet written a one-star review for Empire. The closest I've come is Six Underground. I've also never written a five-star review for Empire yet. So, that's really? Still time. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're not that difficult to impress. Just, <laughs> I mean, just, you know, some people talking to each other, someone has a lightsaber or a superpower, and then you, ha- you throw a nice little bit of score on there, and you're like, oh, yes, please, five stars. So, I think <laughs> the Amon Warman one-star or five-star challenge begins here. Uh, what would you have given Moonfall? Uh, two. Oh, come on. <laughs> All right. That's a good note on which to end the listener question section. Uh, if you want to get in touch with, with us on the Empire Podcast and have a question uh, considered f- to be read out on the podcast, then you can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. You can slide into my DMs. You can reply to any of my tweets with a question, or you can wait for a panicked shout out every now and again. And we got some really good questions this week that I'll be banking. I promise I will be banking for future weeks. Now it is time to talk about this week's movie news, and it's a fairly packed old week, folks. There is a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about. Where do you want to start? Where do we, we start? We probably have to start with the Black Adam trailer. Um, do we? Do we why, why, why are we starting there? It's probably the biggest piece of news this week. Okay. Is it bigger than Joker 2? Is it bigger than Julia Garner playing Madonna? Is it bigger than Nev Campbell not being in Scream 6? Is it bigger than the announcement of the Ghostbusters yes. Afterlife sequel? Yes, is it, it bigger is. than the Nope trailer? Is it bigger than Anthony Hopkins <laughs> being in Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon? Is it bigger than Jason Bateman dropping out of directing Project Artemis with Chris Evans and Scarlett Johansson? Is it bigger than the rumors of a Marvel Studios Thunderbolts movie? I would say no <laughs> to pretty much all of those. Do, do, you know yes. what? do you know what? I want to hear Amon attempt to say nice things about this incredibly regressive trailer. So go on. Have at it. Honestly, the only nice thing that I have to say about it 
is that I'm looking forward to seeing the JSA on screen more than anything else in this trailer. Dr. Fate especially is a character I've been waiting to see get his due. Oh, haven't we screen. all? Who's Dr. Fate? <laughs> He's a really cool character. <laughs> Dr. Fate, I really like the look of him. Or a Hawkman uh, looks great. <laughs> <laughs> I forget what podcast I want sometimes. Hawkman, Hawkman, a superhero only a layer below Condor Man in my esteem, I would say. What? That's his name, Hawkman. I know. It I'm just co- saying. It's a good costume. Oh, yeah. yeah it's 100% a good costume if you're going to like an Eyes Wide Shut-esque orgy ball thing. Uh, 100%. I yeah. am, actually, as yeah, a matter of fact. I've got one alien. planned this weekend, so that'd be great. But, yeah, I'm... We're looking forward to seeing Aldous Hodge in that role. Because um, Aldous Hodge, I've been a, been a fan of his for a while. Ever since uh, Leverage, the really good TV show, which you guys should watch. But yeah, the trailer was... Uh, every, uh, the other elements are not so great. We got a number of things in the trailer which are highlighting Egypt, but the people who are on screen are not from that region. Um, and I do think that is an issue. Um, but yeah, I'm sure James has other things to say in terms of the whole 90s looking look of it all. I mean, that that's my biggest, that's my biggest <laughs> bugbear with this is that it just, it feels like the last two decades never happened. Like it just feels, and look, it's a trailer, it's a trailer. Mm-hmm. It could still be genius. You'd never know. And I will admit that I'm slightly biased by the fact that I'm not particularly steeped in sort of deep cut DC stuff. And I've always struggled a little bit with the fact that and I think, again, it comes down to the audience that they were originally aimed at when those characters were created, that the DC stuff is a little bit more sort of like... Young skewing is not what I'm going for, though the comics were originally, I think, slightly younger skewing than the Marvel stuff, which were more at teenagers. But the characters can be a little bit more... They have an absurdity to them sometimes, which I think makes translating them accurately from page to screen more difficult. Um, and I felt the absurdity here a little bit. Like, it... it bothered me a little bit but more than that it was just the tone it was like it felt like a 90s superhero movie like it felt like hey look we're doing superheroes look at this it's super and i was just like yeah i mean after the mcu i feel like we need to exist in a different space and that doesn't mean everything has to be joker and we'll get onto the joker sequel Mm. which i'm tired already thinking about in a minute but um yeah i just i saw this and it was very much my overwhelming thought was you know the mid 90s have called and they want their movie back Mm. I think the other thing that bothered me with this trailer, and again, this is just a mark of how messed up the DCEU is at this point, but they had this big old line by Hawkman to Black Adam, heroes don't kill people. And then (laughs) Black Adam says, well, I do. And you're meant to have Black Adam as this like really dangerous anti-hero who's going to break the rules. And yet, in the DCEU, you've had Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman be killers yeah. already. Everyone so, be killing. Exactly. Mm. So the line just means, like, what, what does that even mean at this point? Yeah. Because the DCEU is so screwed up. No, DCEU is fine. did that. And, oh, <laughs> see, this is the consequences if you don't get the characters right and if you go the killing route, which is what I've been saying. The killing route is not a Batman comic. Come on. <laughs> but anyhow. Yeah, that, that that line did not ring true. Well, I haven't seen the trailer, so I'm, I'm not going to weigh in on this. <laughs> However, I think now we should talk about a DC project that we can all get behind, uh, which is the announcement this week 
by Todd Phillips on Instagram that a, a Joker sequel does seem to be happening. And in it French, does which was unexpected. seem to be happening. Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> that would be very, very interesting. Uh, so Joker, of course, came out in 2019, was universally beloved. Uh, <laughs> we gave it five stars, Chris. It was beloved. <laughs> I know we gave it five stars. <laughs> I remember we reviewed it on one when we were doing the podcast tour. We did it in one of the live podcasts we reviewed it because I, I it was one of these films where I watched it and I liked it and I thought it was it, you know how a lot of films they grow on you over time. You watch them and like the more you think about them, the more you love them. You're like, oh my god, that film was so good. This was the complete opposite for me. I came out of it. I never thought it was a five star film, but I really liked it. And the more time has passed, the less I have liked that film. I came out of it knowing 100 percent I would never ever watch it again, but. Now I just I, I it's yeah I, I feel much more negatively about that film than I did when I first saw it. Yeah, but of course it made it made over a billion dollars at the box office, um, and it got ludicrously eleven Oscar nominations. Uh, <coughs> won a couple of them, one of which, of course, was for Joaquin Phoenix in the Arthur role as Affleck. Sorry, uh, Arthur Fleck. And I'm still pretending that he won it for Gladiator as Commodus instead. It just <laughs> just makes it easier for me. Does it? That, see, that nomination for Commodus, I thought, was absolutely deranged. What? Uh, because I love that, that film, but I do not think he is good as Commodus. He but that, that's all I'm saying. What are you talking about? Is he, about? though? Is yes. he, though? I don't Among think he is. Only dogs can hear you now. What's, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I did not like that performance at all. But, oh, uh, but anyway, you know what, you know carry what I have on. Let the record reflect. Amon is putting his thumb down. Well, funnily enough, Amon, the thumb down oh, sign God. technically meant that they were to let the person live because it was to represent really? sheathing of the sword. And they knew that when they made Gladiator, but they decided to keep it because it had been held in popular culture that thumb down was a negative thing and they didn't want to confuse audiences. But it is, I think you'll find, historically inaccurate. Yeah. Now he would just do a sort of sad face crying emoji. He would, yeah, just, he would just hold up an emoji. And that's how that would happen. It would be sword aubergine. Ketchup, ketchup, ketchup. Is there a ketchup emoji? There is now. Yes, yes. Anyway, listen, loads of people love Joker, and I know that we are perhaps um, in a minority in not liking Joker, so I'm not going to get into this news too much. Obviously, Helen <laughs> knows that we're talking about a Joker sequel and is currently on her way. Uh, she's go- she's barreling through walls and doors and going through people's living rooms. Dancing down steps. At a blur to get here, and then she's going to run in here, which is weird because, like, well, she does know where I live, but she's going to crash in my front door in here and then go, fucking Joker! I hate the Joker! I can't stand the Joker! I say no! I say no to the Joker. <laughs> Helen O'Hara says no to the Joker. That's what she's going to say, and <laughs> which is a very accurate impression. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of with her a little bit, but because the first one was designed to be, you know, and loads of people love it, and I, I know wins Oscars and billion dollars and all that sort of stuff, five stars in Empire Magazine. As I said at the time, it felt to me like Todd Phillips had seen Taxi Driver and King of Comedy and then try to recreate them with the Joker at the center, but hadn't really quite got to grips with what makes Taxi Driver and King of Comedy so great. Uh, and it also felt very much like a standalone. I did not think that Joaquin Phoenix would want to go back to this. You know, he's We've all heard the stories about how deep in the role he became immersed and how arduous that was for him and for other people as well. So I didn't think he'd want to do it again. And also there's a thing about, can you go back to a role that you won an Oscar for and can lightning strike twice? But nevertheless, Todd Phillips and his writing partner, Scott Silver, have been beavering away on a script. And this week it was revealed that the title is Joker Folly Adieu. Um, what, what does it mean? I don't Isn't know. It like shared madness or something. Okay, that's interesting. So 
Uh, some people have in, have uh, intimated from this that there will be more than one Joker in this, and it'll be some sort of DC Elseworlds multiverse movie. I don't know. I just think that we didn't need a sequel to this, and I'm not that excited or interested by it. But, you know, every day is Christmas Eve around here, so maybe this one will work for me in a way that the first one worked for seemingly everyone, everyone else. else. Mm. Yeah. I love your optimism, Chris. I wish I could share it. I do not. I'm, um. I'm, try, I'm trying, man. I'm trying. I'm trying to be a good shepherd. I'm trying. Okay. I'm trying to walk the righteous path. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know about this. I, I there there is there is a feeling that the first movie was fairly ponderous and fairly pretentious and fairly even pretentious, if you will. And maybe all its success means that they'll double down on those aspects this time around. And I'm not sure. I want to. I want to see that. Uh, but equally, the gap between the sequels may be because he's been binging Martin Scorsese movies, seeing what he can rip off next. Uh, maybe it's going to be a combination of Hugo and Kundun. I'd be, I'd be bang up for that. Or, <laughs> so would I. I love Kundun. Yeah, yeah, that'd be amazing. Or uh, bringing out the dead in New York, New York. If you're going to combine Martin Scorsese movies, let's make it interesting and unexpected. That's that's all I'm asking for. I feel similarly to the Joker and to, uh, to how I feel about Venom in that Joker without Batman. Venom without Spider-Man, the things that make these characters work, the, the stories that I've read, they work better when they have that opposite against them to bounce off of. Uh, on their lonesome, it can be quite tricky, as we've seen both with Venom and with Joker. But is that um, true? Because like Venom, certainly in the comics, has enjoyed a fairly healthy life separate from Spider-Man, like Lethal yeah. Protector, his whole sort of run and stuff, because he's become an anti-hero in his own right, which I guess is more what they were trying to tap into in those films, yeah. for all of their faults, of which there are many. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there are, there are the odd stories, which work. I'm just saying, in terms of the best versions of those characters are when they have that opposite. Yeah, that's fair. That's definitely um, So, yeah, and given everything they did with the whole uh, Bruce Wayne mythology in the first Joker, I don't understand how, if that works, even if they're still going down that path. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not optimistic about this at all. But stranger things have happened in terms of me liking a sequel to a first movie that I've hated. Maybe, maybe this will be the case. I would love to be proven wrong. If I am, I'll come on this podcast and happily say so. I don't envision that that is what is in the cards, but we shall see. <laughs> you never know. You never know. But like speaking of slightly unlikely sequels, like I don't think, I mean, was anyone, did anyone have any kind of, you know, optimism when they announced that they were, that Dan Trachtenberg was making Prey? Like, I like Dan Trachtenberg. I think he's great. Uh, but, but it just felt like, I felt, I feel like, and I love Predator with uh, a love that really? is You've so bright it. and pure, I can't even begin to possibly <laughs> sum it up in words. And with every sort of sequel, it's kind of hammered the nail into that coffin a little bit harder. And Predator, which should have been great and so demonstrably wasn't, was maybe the last straw. And then obviously when they were doing Prey, and then it was like, oh, it's not even going to cinemas, it's going straight to streaming. And I was just like, oh God, here we go again. And yet the most recent full trailer, we've had a teaser, the most recent full trailer for this, I was like, I really want to see this film mm-hmm. now. Like really want to see this film now. It looks really, really interesting. It looks fresh. It looks different. And it seems to it seems to maybe recapture some of that sort of creeping dread, which the which John McTiernan captured so brilliantly in that first film, which I've never really managed to get again. It's all felt a bit cartoon 
puny and stupid and it's focused on spectacle over anything else. And I think sometimes, certainly with Predator, less is more. The less you see it, the better. The more its influence is felt rather than seen, the better. And the fact that you have people who are so catastrophically outgunned, I think, works really well as well. And I love the whole sort of Comanche Nation vibe that this has. And the only thing that kind of struck me about this, which I thought was slightly odd, is that and maybe this is just my ears, because they made a big deal of the fact that this is going to have uh, the option to have... It was just subtitles, Comanche subtitles, wasn't it? It was going to have... You were going to be able to watch it with Comanche subtitles, which I think they said was the first time that, that had been available. But didn't all the Comanche characters in this have strong American accents to you? Like, I, I was a little bit thrown by that. Like, if you were going for that kind of Comanche verisimilitude, would you not try and adopt the accent? Like, why... You know, it's not like, oh, dude, look, it's a predator. Like, it's not quite like that. But it's not fucking far off. Not something I'm going to get caught up in in a tale of uh, a young woman being stalked by an, an alien killing machine. And I'll, I mean, be, I'll be honest, it's not going to take me out I of the movie. Honestly, it didn't bother me watching it, particularly. Yeah. It was when I saw the subtitle, I thought, I thought that's a weird thing to latch onto when you clearly made absolutely no effort to, to do it while you were actually making the film. Anyway, maybe I'm being harsh because that is by the by. I think the thing with this film for me is it just looks fucking cool. It might still be terrible. I really hope it isn't. But it made me very, very, very keen to watch this film. And very, mm. very sad that I'm not going to be able to see it in a cinema. I think that's that's a real shame. Oh, that's a good point. It's going to be out on, on Star it is. over yeah. here. It's going to be on Maybe Star. Maybe they'll give it a cinema release. Who knows? I hope so. I really hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. I just watched the trailer before we started recording, and I completely agree uh, with what James said, especially about the dread. Um, that is something that you absolutely feel within that trailer. And if they manage to convey that feeling in an even bigger way in the actual full film, I'll be all for that. That's really, really cool. And, and Dread has, he- in fact, fought a Predator in the comics. <laughs> Indeed. True story. Where is the Dread sequel? Good grief. I mean, oh, don't. I would love to see a sequel to Dread. Yes. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. That film is great, and it, it is really horribly is. underrated. Ten years. Ten years old, that movie. Yeah. Which makes me feel old. <laughs> um but, but there you go. Everything makes me feel old. He says, getting out of bed makes me feel old because my <laughs> knees go, fuck you! <laughs> Anywho, I'm with James. This trailer makes me feel very optimistic about this movie. I do worry about how big a mismatch this is going to be. You know, even in the first Predator movie, they're hopelessly outgunned and they have guns. Uh, so <laughs> <lots of>. can, <laughs> can you take down a Predator with uh, a bow and arrow and, you know... Hey, Arnie kills the first one with a log, so... Yeah, it's not, it isn't about the weapons, it's about the people wielding the weapons and how they do so. The magic was within you all along. <laughs> yeah. Hey, and the magic was within Julia Garner all along as well, because she has been chosen to play Madonna in a Madonna biopic that will be directed by Madonna. So she has been chosen by Madonna to play Madonna. (laughs) That's wild. Yeah. So this is Julia Garner, who, um, of course, was in The Assistant, the movie that came out early-ish in the pandemic. Uh, but most people will know her from Ozark, in which she was uh, an Emmy Award winning, I believe, a standout. I have never seen Ozark, so all I know of her is her film work. But for people who have seen Ozark, this is a good choice. She's apparently uh, pipped people like Florence Pugh to the role after a very arduous audition process during which they had to sing a lot and dance a lot. Dance for Madge! Dance! Dance! <laughs> yeah, I, I don't watch Ozark, but I like this casting. My only, really, my only real concern about this movie is Madonna being so involved could either be a very good thing or a very bad thing. 
depending on how close she is to the story, given how close she is to the story and given sort of... I think she's fairly close well, to it. <laughs> given how close she is, I'm, I'm just saying that that could be, you know, if she decides that she doesn't want to go down certain paths because of that, then that might be a hindrance to the other sort. It, it could be a good thing as well if, if she does decide to go back down those routes and give herself, give that full picture of herself, then having her be this close to the story could also be a good thing, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I don't think that she's someone who shies away from contentious areas or areas of controversy. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's yeah, it is interesting. Uh, she's someone who's always very much put herself out there and uh, it's going to be very interesting to see exactly what what this movie is mm-hmm. and how warts and all this movie is and how no holds barred this movie is because I think we expect that of Madonna and if I were Sean Penn I'd be sweating right now to be quite <laughs> frank <laughs> but uh, to see how I'm portrayed in this film uh, yeah, I'm sure Warren Beatty is going to be this I hope they recreate the moment from um, Truth or Dare uh, or In Bed with Madonna I believe it's called as well I hope they recreate the bit where she meets Kevin Costner backstage have you ever guys ever seen that the, the Madonna Mm-mm. concert documentary you know, where it followed her around on tour and uh, she meets Kevin Costner and he, he says that you know he says oh I li- li- really li- like the show it was neat and then she uh, she takes a piss out of him behind his back for saying for using the word neat because neat was not neat Madonna she'd worked in that show and then Kevin Costner just said it was neat so I hope they recreate that moment the concern I have is that Madonna has directed the past a film called W.E., which came out in 2011, and it was wretched. And so that's that's my concern here. Uh, you know, in terms of in terms of artists having some sort of involvement or some sort of power of veto over how their story is portrayed. You know, Queen were very heavily involved, or half of Queen were very heavily involved in Bohemian Rhapsody. Elton John was heavily involved in. Rocket Man. So it all depends on their personal opinions. You got a sense that there was a lot of censorship going on, and a lot of um, a lot of tip X was being used with the Queen story in Bohemian Rhapsody. And you got the sense with Rocket Man that Elton John was like, "Fuck it, <laughs> warts and all. Mm. You know, make me look like a dickhead. It's fine because it was a period of my life when I was, so it's okay." Uh, and I hope that Madonna, had, you know, I'm, I'm sure she does. She has the she, she she's smart enough to to know that that's where the drama lies here. I think so. Yeah, interesting, exciting. We shall see how that turns out. And in other not casting news, Nev Campbell is not returning as Sidney Prescott in Scream Six, which started filming this week. And a statement was issued by on behalf of Nev Campbell, saying essentially that she had not received a suitably enticing financial offer to do so, or certainly an offer that met her valuation of what she was worth. And I have to applaud her for doing that, mm-hmm. first of all. But also we have to we have to criticize those who lowballed her. You do not lowball Nev Campbell when it comes to a screen movie. Mm-mm. No Nev Campbell, no screen franchise. Yeah. It's pretty that pretty much that simple, isn't it? Yeah. She deserves her big payday. I feel a bit at this point, like, Scream without Nev Campbell is just stab. Like, I don't know why we need to see that. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I also think that this is the right thing to do. But they've, they've, they've kind of stumbled in a very cack-handed fashion on the right way to go with Scream 6, which is that there should be no legacy characters in Scream 6. They, they introduced a new cast of characters in Scream, <laughs> Scream Braggus 2022. Mm. Uh, and... There were some other legacy characters in there. I still don't want to talk about what happened in that movie uh, <laughs> to certain to certain characters. Uh, 
try and tiptoe around spoilers, obviously, but you can I mean, probably guess from, from my tone. The been out for a while. You can spoil I it. I know, if you but want some to. people do take a, a while to, to, to get around to things. I don't want to uh, overtly tackle one of the things that happened in, in that movie. But my feeling is if they were going to bring her back in Scream 6, it was probably to finally kill her. And I, I'm glad that they didn't, you know, I'm glad that we've been spared that. That might not have been the case, but, you know, pretty soon your, your options with Sydney Prescott are she comes back and she gets killed or she comes back and survives okay. again somehow uh, in a very unlikely fashion. But she's increasingly not the focus of these movies. So what's the point? So I think this is the right thing to do, but the wrong way to go about it. She deserves she deserves her payday, quite frankly. And someone on Twitter pointed out that if this had been a man, it probably wouldn't have happened, that she would have been uh, made a decent offer. Frankly, I think that's the correct take. Uh, it feels wrong to me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't understand why you wouldn't give her the payday. It's just a mark of respect um, beyond anything else uh, for what she's done for the franchise. Um, so yeah, I'm glad that she's come out and said what she said. I just... It's disappointing that she had to do that in the first place. Um, but I enjoyed uh, Scream 2022 and the new cast of characters. Uh, and I'm hoping, I think there's enough there from the people who survived to create another engaging uh, Scream story, even without Nev Campbell's presence. So a couple of last very, very quick things. Uh, so Jason Reitman and Gil Cannon have been talking about how they're going to expand the world of Ghostbusters following the success of Ghostbusters Afterlife. And there's going to be a new animated movie on the way. And there's also going to be a new film, which is codenamed Firehouse. So it is presumably based on the chorus of the R.E.M. song Oddfellows Local 151. Uh, alternatively, it might be about where the last movie ended up, which was with uh, Winston Sedmore, played by Ernie Hudson, taking Ecto-1 back to the old firehouse, because he's mega rich now, and he buys the old firehouse uh, HQ of the Ghostbusters and gets the Ghostbusters back up and running again. Uh, so, presumably that's going to carry on where that left off, and maybe we'll get the um, the Spenglers back again, Phoebe and Trevor and, and everybody. And uh, I really liked Ghostbusters Afterlife, so I'm 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 happy for this, and I'm, I'm glad as well, that they're moving forward with something. Uh, I, I imagine Jason Reitman is even more driven than he was before, given the recent passing of his father, Ivan, mm. to to continue his father's legacy. I wrote a column uh, a few issues back on Ernie Hudson and the ending of Ghostbusters Afterlife because it seems to be positioning him for a more meaty role, which he was denied in the earlier Ghostbusters films because of silliness, basically. Um, so any new Ghostbusters film that we get I hope that he is front and center um, and gets to do a lot, whether it's handing down to a new generation or something else, um, because he's a really great character. And very, very quickly, there are rumors. We don't tend to talk about the rumors that much. For example, there was a rumor a couple of weeks ago that uh, Marvel are moving forward with a Daredevil Disney Plus show that will bring back Charlie Cox and, and Vincent D'Onofrio. Um, and maybe more from the Netflix show, who knows, but uh, nothing's been confirmed yet, and nothing's been confirmed either about a Thunderbolts movie, but uh, it was talked about today in the Hollywood trades that Marvel are moving ahead with a Thunderbolts movie, uh, which will be directed by Jake Schreier and written by Eric Pearson, who wrote Black Widow, and in case you don't know what Thunderbolts is, it is essentially about a group of it's a super group, but with a twist in in, in that uh, a bit like Suicide Squad. This is yeah. a, a group comprised of baddies. Yeah, it's but Marvel these baddies, Suicide Squad. 
it's Marvel Suicide Squad, but these baddies, there's a bit more to it than that, in that they're baddies who have either been rehabilitated or are pretending to be rehabilitated and are pretending to, and are, are, are certainly given the impression of working for the greater good, whilst maybe not working for the greater good, the greater good. <laughs> uh, and we don't know much about this movie. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know when it's going to go into production. We don't know even know who the lineup is going to be, but you can probably take a guess. Uh, they've been moving pieces into place now for, for a while. So you'd imagine there'd be people like Baron Simo and US Agent and yeah. people like that. Do you think you, Val you is going to be the them. Amanda Waller of this team? Yeah, I'm. I'm more intrigued than excited about this because some of the names that I've been seeing bandied about on Twitter the last few days feels like they're mixing characters who popped, like uh, Yelena, like, like Yelena, with characters who have decidedly not popped. And I include Val, and I include US Agent in that. He is mm-hmm. still his arc inverted commas in Falcon and Winter Soldier is still one of the worst things that Marvel have done in phase four so far. Like it just didn't make any sense to me. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know uh, about putting all these characters together, uh, but I do know this. If this does come about, then the hierarchy of power in the Marvel Cinematic Universe <laughs> is about to change. It is about to change. <laughs> uh, I don't know. We, we, we shall see. Every day is Christmas Eve. You know, we're, we're obviously very excited for... Any film uh, that revolves around a supervillain, as our excitement about Joker Folly Adieu showed. Um, <laughs> but this one, I don't know. The Fowl character has not worked for me in her brief nope. appearances so far, despite being played by the brilliant Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And maybe if she's promoted to team leader in this and she'll get a chance to pop a little bit more. But yes, we shall see what we shall see with this one. Right now, though, it's time for a shameless plug. It is shameless plug time because a brand new issue of Empire right now is New Empire Day proudly is adorning shelves in all good and evil news agents or can be seen as a little thumbnail in your virtual news agents if that's your bag. And it's an absolute cracker of an issue this month, you can tell because I had very little to do with it. On the cover, well, we have three covers this month, folks, giving you a world first look at the brand new Lord of the Rings Prime Video Series the Rings of Power. We spoke to the show's cast and key creatives, including J.A. Biona, Morford Clark, and Lenny Bloody Henry. Yes, indeed. Lenny Henry is in this issue of Empire. I am hugely excited about that. It is just right for reading over a second breakfast, or maybe even a third. Also in the feature section, we talked to David Leach and Brad Pitt about Bullet Train. We talked to stop-motion legend Phil Tippett about his decades in the making extravaganza, Mad God, and we dive deep into the crazy world of standards. But Pride of Place goes to two sensational retrospective pieces in which we talk to James Mangold about the incredible Copland as it hits its 25th anniversary, and Tim Burton on the occasion of Batman Returns 30th. Many happy Batman Returns, everybody. In the news section, we look at even more Stranger Things. We talk to Billy Eichner about bros, Adam Wingard about Face Off 2, and we have an Avatar The Way of Water exclusive that will knock your mo-capped socks off. And in my section, the best section, review, the home entertainment section, I am reliably informed, because I can never remember, that there is some good stuff, including an interview with Michael Bay about Ambulance, Bruce Willis's movies being ranked in uh, the ranking, 
Judd Apatow on his comedy heroes and much, much more. It is a must read, a must buy, a must have. And it's available now wherever you mag your scenes. Okay, so shameless plug for the magazine over. It is time now for our second and final guest this week. And Jurassic World Dominion brings to an end, so it is claimed anyway, when this movie makes a billion dollars, as it almost certainly will. (laughs) We shall see some people's resolve being tested. Uh, It brings to an end the Jurassic Park franchise that began all those years ago in, well, 65 million years ago, to be precise, but... (laughs) More accurately, in 1993, with Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park, it is now ending with Jurassic World Dominion, uh, directed by Colin Trevorrow, which brings together the legacy cast, the original stars of Jurassic Park, Sam Neill, Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum, and the stars of the Jurassic World franchise, Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard. And in fact, it is Bryce Dallas Howard, who I had the good fortune to chat to the other day uh, in... In London, she came in to London for a face-to-face chat at a junket. She is an absolute delight and is someone who can take an answer and run with it. And uh, obviously, Bryce Dallas Howard is an incredible actress. Uh, she's been in tons of stuff over the years outside the Jurassic World movies. Uh, she's been moving into directing recently with uh, a couple of uh, good episodes of The Mandalorian and the standout episode of The Book of Boba Fett which, of course, didn't have any Boba Fett in it. It was, it was Mandalorian-centric. It's perhaps not a surprise to see that she is going to be a director as well, because her dad, of course, is Ron Howard. And she has basically grown up on movie sets throughout her entire life. And weirdly enough, that is where we began. Had a blast with this one. Bryce Dallas Howard, do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the star of Jurassic World Dominion, Bryce Dallas Howard. How the devil are you? My goodness, I'm very, I'm, I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Excellent. I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. How long have you been in London? Is it literally just flying in, flying uh, it's, out? Uh, it's been hours, <laughs> not, not days. But got here uh, yesterday evening. Yes. Okay, but you shot the movie in and around here. Yeah, here. at Pinewood. Yeah. yeah. So you must know the place like the back of your hand. I love London so mm-hmm. much. My brother was born here. The first time I was ever here. <laughs> was when I was five years old when my dad was shooting a movie called Willow. <laughs> and my brother, my mom was due with my brother. There's, uh, They had twins. Basically, there was me. Uh-huh. I was five. And there were twins who were four years younger. They were basically like one. And then there was my brother. And she gave birth <laughs> the, the day before Willow started shooting. No way. So, yeah, there was a very tired director. <laughs> At the helm of that movie, young director. I wonder if your dad can pinpoint the shots though on the first day when he was so tired in that movie. It's oh like... my gosh, I can't even imagine. <laughs> I can't even imagine. There's a video that we have actually um, of me and my dad because he he used to always bring me to set every single day right. because it was also like my mom was was at home with two twin toddlers yeah. and a newborn. Yeah. And um and so I was kind of the beneficiary of that circumstance and he would he would just involve me in stuff on set and because I think also he was a child actor so he remembers he has memories of being very conscious at the age of 5 um you know and memorizing dialogue at the age of 5 and having opinions and all of that. And so there's a video of my dad talking to um talking to me in in a in a in a car in a black cab uh-huh. and he's saying 
movies, babies, movies, babies. <laughs> and and he's kind of asking me when I think the baby's going to be bored and like sharing kind of his concerns about the movie and the timing of it all. And he's, meanwhile, he's being filmed by one of his friends who they always made a documentary about like each kid being born, which was fun. Um, and it just showed sort of, I, I whenever I get to see that stuff, I get to see London in the mid- 1980s, which is super uh-huh. fun. Yes. And and sort of this dynamic between me, me and my dad where weirdly he he would sort of like ask my advice. It was always it's very strange to see a grown man ask advice of a five-year-old in like total earnest. And I would just answer back like I was the authority. And so yeah, there was a lot of stuff that I got to experience very young. I lived um or I went to school at a school called Cavendish. Uh-huh. And we lived near Big Ben. And then since then, I've I've had the chance, my first kind of movie as an actor that I shot here was a Kenneth Branagh film. Uh, it was uh, an adaptation of As You Like It. Uh-huh. And I played Rosalind and that was super fun. And, and I've since done a ton of stuff, you know, Two Jurassic Worlds, uh, Rocket Man. It's one of the best places to film, if not the best place to film on the planet. It's, <laughs> tr- it's just true. There you go. And Argyle, of course, one of your-, your and, and then yeah. Argyle, yeah. yes. Very. Yeah, so I was here I was here for the last, um, last year for, gosh, almost six months working on a Matthew Vaughn film. And uh, it was wonderful. It was total madness and I adored it. And, uh, and I'm going to be coming back here in just a, a in just a month or so to just you know pick up some additional moments and I'm so excited to come back again. When I landed last night, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy. I feel like I'm going home. Like I I feel so happy. And I was like, why do I feel so happy? And and um and my assistant who was traveling with me was like, because we have friends there, you know, <laughs> because it feels like home because we've spent every season there. So, so now, of course, uh, you are a director as well. Uh, do you do the same thing? If there are younger people on the set, do you still ask their advice and in 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 earnest? And you know what, I do one hundred percent. And I'll I'll tell you something kind of interesting. So I and in particular my own kids and and involving my own kids. And when I was, uh, I've had the chance, the immense privilege to direct on a show called The Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a handful of times. And when we were shooting the first season, it was, I was actually, uh, I was going back and forth between here and Los Angeles where we shot it because I was doing Rocket Man at the time. And um, while I was, while I was prepping for, um, for Mandalorian. And so uh, it was really cool because it was like incredibly secretive. I couldn't tell anyone. Um, and, and of course there was baby Yoda and uh, <laughs> when I was getting ready to do the episode, it, it's a lot of the episode takes place in this village and they needed to, we needed to hire kids that we knew could keep the secret of Baby Yoda, which is a really difficult thing to assess. And so, um, and so I was like, I think my kids can do that because they've, they've done that in the past with Jurassic <laughs> and um and so they got to be background supporting artists yeah. in in the episode, which was so fun, and they were fantastic. And then when I was when um, oh, I should right before the moment that they actually started acting in it, 
we would, John Favreau has the most extraordinary um, workflow when it comes to prepping for, for a project. And what he basically uh, has us do uh, each individually as directors is is create an animated version of the episode. And, and in that version, we're allowed to, you know, we're given uh, a quite a bit of flexibility in terms of just trying different things out yeah. and assessing like, oh, there may be a problem here. This could be a potential solve. Let me present it to you. And so it's a really fun iterative process because uh, he's the writer. He's also the showrunner. And he he can rewrite based on what he's seeing prior to actually shooting. And it's much more effective than than just reading a script. You're, you're seeing it up on its feet. Yeah. And so I would bring my daughter for some of those screenings. And she at the time was maybe six. And we would be watching the screening. And every time Baby Yoda wasn't on screen, she would start to whisper to me, where's baby? Where's the baby? Where's baby Yoda? Where's the baby? <laughs> And John noticed this. He noticed that she she felt a little anxious when she didn't know where baby Yoda was. And so he realized that kids were going to lean into the the journey of baby Yoda more than we had kind of anticipated and that we needed to track where baby was because baby was really important. And because of that, he wrote a couple of of um, moments that that uh, kind of provided that connective tissue, so that so that baby was always we knew where baby was, and it was because my daughter was asking that question because she was in the room while I was doing a screening of you know the advanced version of my episode, basically. That's so, amazing. That's cool. That's great. Uh, I also love the idea of uh, getting kids to sign NDAs. Just going, sign this. I know you're five years old, but trust me, if you break this, your life is over. So just sign here, just a little X if you want to do that. I know, it's incredible. (laughs) I kind of feel that kids are probably better secret keepers than adults because they are, the stakes are higher. Mm -hmm. Their world is so much smaller. And so having this piece of adult information, like they know that this is this is like the only thing they know that they're not supposed to know and so and so it's kind of more at the forefront of their mind to keep it a secret yes my dad is terrible my dad so many times has shared stuff that he's not supposed to and it happens like regularly and it's maddening and like you there's a couple of interviews of me on the red carpet with him and you you see that I am not relaxed like I am very tense and he's like oh yeah I'm really proud of my daughter's directing and I'm basically like don't talk about Mandalorian don't you dare talk about Mandalorian like you know it's it's because anytime I do an episode you know there's there's even if I've shot one I can't acknowledge it until it's come out and so it's just, it, it's high stakes. My dad revealed that Chris Pratt was cast as the co-lead of Jurassic before he was actually <laughs> cast. <laughs> like, I was like, dad. And I remember he he took a picture of me and Chris the first time we met each other on on the red carpet at some kind of like Golden Globes after party. And uh, and it was, you know, really sweet. My dad was like, oh, I want to take a picture of you. And, and it was fun. Chris and I, you know, officially meeting one another. Yeah. But it was sort of this like wink, wink, you know, hope it works out. Hope yeah. like officially, because at that point he was going to be releasing 
Guardians of the Galaxy. He had shot it, but it hadn't come out yet. And he was going to release it while Jurassic was shooting. And it was looking like actually it wasn't going to work out. The mm-hmm. The timing of everything and kind of his commitments um, to the release of Guardians, and of course what he would want to do as well, was going to prohibit him from being in Jurassic. Uh, and my dad took that picture, posted it, <laughs> the next morning called me and was like, hey, I, I posted that picture of you and Chris and wow, it's getting a lot of traction. <laughs> like there's more retweets than I've ever gotten. And I didn't want to like shatter his world at that point. And so yeah. I was just like, cool, dad, cool. And then a couple of hours later, he called me and he was like, so there are a lot of outlets picking up on it. And I need to ask, was that not announced, Bryce? Oh, that's amazing. And I was like, no, Dad, no. That is amazing. No, it it wasn't announced. Oh and uh, I don't even know if it's actually happening. And he was like, oh, my gosh, I need to call Donna Langley and apologize and Steven Spielberg and apologize. And Chris later revealed that it was kind of the nudge that he needed to make it happen because since it was accidentally announced uh, by my dad, it seemed like his team had the leverage to go back and just be like, hey, listen, like work this out. Let's work this out. Like now he's going to have to respond to what? Now he's not in Jurassic? Like Ron Howard just announced it. So let's try to play ball here. Hang on. Is Was your dad playing 4D chess? (laughs) Seems to me maybe he was ahead of the game. (laughs) Nope. Nope. <laughs> no sir. No. That's amazing. I would love. Um, uh, we were talking off air uh, about how I'm going to be doing a spoiler special podcast on Jurassic with Colin Trevorrow later on today. I would love to do one with your dad. Oh my gosh! Uh, even that would though be he really has fun. nothing to do with the movie, I would love to see how much he knows about this movie. <laughs> Well, I can sit down with him. He doesn't. He doesn't because I know it's a problem. Because like, you don't tell him the stuff. No, I didn't let him read the first Jurassic World. He hasn't read any of the scripts. <laughs> but you would imagine like the first one I would share. I mean, I very rarely, like I, I'll go to my dad for lots of advice about family and, um, and you know, in instances when I'm kind of navigating something. I mean, he's so experienced and has so much wisdom and also humility. And so he's a, an incredible person to go uh, ask advice from, even though he's always really hesitant. He's like, oh, I don't want to give, you know, you know, advice. You, you, you know what's best. I'm like, no, 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 dad, really, you've like spent 65 years in the industry. Um, <laughs> but I have to be really careful because I can't, you know, Grandpa Howard is not the most reliable when it comes to kind of letting spoilers sneak out there because he's just at the end of the day, he's he's a proud dad. And I just, you know, yeah, yeah, it's an issue. Even with the like the M. Night Shyamalan movies that I did, I did a Terminator film, I did a Spider-Man film, I did a Twilight film, couldn't share anything with my dad. Anything. <laughs> That's wild. But you yourself are very good at uh, holding on to the stuff, keeping your cards close to yes. your chest. On, on this movie, the pressure must have been doubled because of the presence of the the original cast and more dinosaurs than you could shake uh, a stick at yes. in this one. And people yes. must be going, so tell us about the dinosaurs. Yes. I mean, it's really hard. I have I have kind of a philosophy around that and and spoilers and whatnot and how to kind of protect them and and it's it's I will what's difficult is like I really this process 
this process of us like, you know, talking to each other and releasing a movie and all that kind of stuff. Like I value these relationships and I will never lie to someone. Like I'm never going to lie to someone if they ask me a question flat out, but I will, I will try to evade it, you know? And so it's really tricky with these, with these movies because I am wildly enthusiastic about them. Like I don't do anything. I always say my my enthusiasm is my superpower. And I I just won't do something unless I'm incredibly enthusiastic about it. So then to t- try to like put a lid on that and 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 not talk about it is so 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 challenging especially when someone is flat out asking me a question and I'm like trained to answer honestly as a person. <laughs> and so there is this sort of like duality where I know you're asking me this question, but I promise you don't actually want to know the answer this way. Like you you want to you want to experience the answer when you see the movie. Like you want to like I want you to go on the ride. Yeah. And to not spoil the ride for you. And it's um and there's always there it's always a tricky thing to navigate. I wish I could lie. You know, I wish I could just be like Are you thinking about this? No. Nope. You know. <laughs> I've had that. I've had people do that. Yeah. And I've then you find out later. Yeah. But but it's also like, who knows the situation? I mean, it's so of course, tricky. So many you know, so much pressure and they they've got NDAs are even more terrifying than the ones I've signed in my life. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. you know, it, it's 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 a whole thing. But I, I but I totally get it. Preserving the ride is is the way to go. And uh, there are things in this movie that I don't want to spoil for people, but I will say that your character Claire goes through the ringer. Yes, I think that's fair to say. Yes, uh, we see that in the trailer. There, there's <laughs> there's the the submersion uh, submersion in water. Yep. There's hanging from a tree. Yep. There's all sorts of Clothes stuff. Clothes lining. Clothes dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> Chris gets to go on a motorbike and ride around yes. a little bit. You get to go through sheer hell. That's not fair. <laughs> What's going on there? Honestly, he, uh, I would not trade places. <laughs> I don't want to ride on a motorcycle. Chris actually on the first movie he got thrown off of a motorcycle and still has an injury Ooh. from it. Still like <laughs> even during interviews he's like, "Oh." It's uh, <laughs> like, "Oh, that's from that day <laughs> when I thought I could ride a motorcycle." Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe he can, but he got he got thrown off of it. Oh, sometimes and, a motorcycle has different ideas. Yes. Yeah. I, or I think if you just look at the statistics, there's a real likelihood that you're going to get thrown from the motorcycle. Precisely. Yeah. 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 But uh, but but in this one, you know, you you are constantly in peril. Yes. Uh, and that must have been. I don't know. Is, is that is that is that stuff still fun for you? Things where you have oh to gosh, submerge yourself it. in water whilst hiding from a, a big old scary dinosaur. I love it yeah. so much. I may not look it, but I'm a very physical, athletic, kind of like, I, I mean, it's weird to call yourself like athletic. I'm, I'm like, I'm like prone to wanting to experience athletic challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, and I also, that's because of my family and how I was raised. And so I have a background in martial arts and, uh, and, and got to try out a lot of different kinds of physical activities as a kid. So, um, in in doing movies, I mean, I, I've I've always I've always leaned into movies that are are spectacles, are high budget, you know, be, and not not because it's about the money, but because there's going to be a lot of different units working simultaneously, and usually those are genre films, and and naturally 
you know, propulsive because they need to be commercial. And and what always ends up happening is that the character I'm playing is is typically in some kind of peril and there needs to be some training that's associated with it. And that to me is one of the most exciting parts of my job. The Matthew Vaughn movie that I just did, Argyle is an action film. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I got to do, I got to do a lot of action. (laughs) And, um, and it, it, it was, it was, it was just so, so, so exhilarating all the time, every single day at work. And I felt that way with Jurassic because also at the end of the day, you're like, oh, I'm really tired. Like I, I, like I earned my money today because it is also something where it's like such a, it, it, some elements of this job can seem and might even be cushy. Mm-hmm. But when you're actually in there doing stunts again and again and again and needing to perform and deliver and it hurts, like I have a rule that anything is okay that heals within a week. So if it's going to heal, if it's going to cut me, but it'll heal within a week, then it's fine. <laughs> it's going to bruise me, but it'll heal within a week. No problem. Yeah. And so it starts to hurt. And that is what it takes. I should also mention, I have an incredible stunt double named Sarah Lachlan, who when it goes beyond that and requires more expertise or I can't be trained to execute a stunt, like Sarah's right there. And she was part of designing all of the stunts and and making sure that I could do them. And we've worked together now on on two films. She worked on Fallen Kingdom. And um, and that relationship is is so key as well. You've been on these sets. You've been on movie sets since the age of five, pretty much. You're, you know, as I say, you're now a director. Even more, I remember putting on the the tail for Madison for um, Splash. I mean, get out of town. I remember trying on town. the alien head for Cocoon. <laughs> it was very thin latex and powdery. <laughs> that is wild. So I presume you don't get nervous. Even on days when, say, for example, the original three cast big cast members. Shows up. Yeah. I do. I totally get nervous. And you I was do. very comforted because the other day I did an interview with Jeff Goldblum and he said that he gets starstruck and I get so starstruck. And I was like, if Jeff Goldblum gets starstruck, it's cool that I do too. Ahead of everything, I am a fan of movies. And Jurassic Park in particular was a movie that changed my life. I saw it when I was 12 years old. In the theater, opening weekend, it made me fall in love with emerging technology that I was already fascinated by. I was already curious about it whenever I was on a set with my dad. Like I remember when they were doing morphing in uh, in Willow. And, and I was like, how are you going to do this? You know? And so with Jurassic Park, the technology was such that you couldn't def- you couldn't see you couldn't identify the magic trick yeah. you couldn't see what was happening um and so for all intents and purposes those were real dinosaurs and it opened up a whole new world of possibility for filmmaking and storytelling and i felt that when i was 12 like i cried i got emotional in the theater watching dinosaurs come to life uh because i knew what was now possible and so to and then and then set aside the fact that these three characters were like emblazoned and imprinted upon me at a very young age as like some of the most iconic characters that existed so to work with them as people was 
was really like it felt very high stakes. But what was incredible is that they're they're three of the warmest, most extroverted, wonderful, genuine people you can ever meet collectively and individually. And so very quickly, any nerves that I had were replaced with just kind of a deep love for each one of them. And then in addition to that, they're all at the top of their game. And so watching their process as actors and as collaborators, and especially with Colin, who's unbelievably uh, inclusive and collaborative with his actors, it, it, it was something that Chris and I would marvel at constantly. It was a masterclass in, in, in acting. That's amazing. Well, uh, I will say this uh, as, a, as a parting shot, which is, you know, not to give anything away that happens in the movie, obviously, but there, there is a possibility that uh, uh, an actor might be going through the same thing 20 years from now with you and Chris in a, in a further Jurassic Galaxy movie or something down the line. <laughs> All right, who are, knows? Are you are you are you uh, looking forward to that day? Perhaps when there's a, a another sequel and, of course. and you guys are the cast. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm a fan. Like I said, I'm a fan first. I I love movies and I love this franchise so much. And and that would be that would be awesome. And and it's certainly something that you know, Chris and I have have sort of just like looked at each other when Laura and Sam and Jeff are like, oh my God, I can't believe that this happened, you know, and we're just like, what if it happened to us? <laughs> <laughs> 20 years from now, let's meet back here and have another yeah. chat about, about the next one. Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, absolute pleasure. Thanks so much indeed. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. it. Okay, so that was Bryce Dallas Howard, the star of Jurassic World Dominion, and that is, of course, the only place that we can start the reviews section of the show, talking about what's out in the multiplex and on the sofaplex this weekend. Jimbo. Jurassic World, no colon, Dominion, and the missing colon between World and Dominion is only one of the crimes, unfortunately, this film commits. <laughs> uh, this is the latest, and dare I say it, final installment in the Jurassic <laughs> franchise. That might be a no. little bit. Yeah, so this is the end of the sort of Jurassic World trilogy, and this takes place four years after the destruction of Nublar, uh, and dinosaurs now live alongside humans. So the main setup of this is that we now live in a world where humans and dinosaurs live happily together, side by side, in the whole world. Except you wouldn't know that from this film, and I think, you know... The biggest problem I have with this film is that it squanders what might be the greatest opportunity in the history of this franchise, which is to do a film where it is humans and dinosaurs in the wild. And the opportunities that gives you are endless. Mm -hmm. And yet this film, what it does is it takes you back to a kind of hermetically sealed complex where dinosaurs are kept behind fences. And it just feels like going back to that format is a strange misstep. So just, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, so I should say this takes place after the events of the first one where where Owen Grady and uh, Claire Deering are living in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of hut, sort of on the run with the, uh, so shall we say, enigmatic Maisie Lockwood, if you know, you know. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, there's been a black market trade and dinosaurs has come up and a kind of a scary Steve Jobs type character, Lewis Dodgson, yes, that Dodgson, played by Campbell Scott, uh, has got a big uh, sort of bio pharma company called Biosyn, again, who you remember from the first Jurassic Park. Uh, and he is doing all sorts of nefarious things and breeding dinosaurs. And it takes Owen and it takes uh, Claire teaming up 
with the original cast of the first Jurassic Park. So Laura Dern is back as Ellie, Ellie Sattler. Sam Neill is back as Alan Grant. Jeff Goldblum, the inimitable Jeff Goldblum, is back mm-hmm. as Dr. Ian Malcolm. Uh, and all of them combine forces to take down Biosyn, and there are new, bigger, better dinosaurs. I think the problem I have uh, with this on so many levels is that like I said before, it squanders opportunities, but bigger is not better. You know, I'm kind of bored of, hey, look, it's a thing that looks like the T-Rex, but is spikier and bigger, and this is exciting. Uh, and sort of making a meal out of that, or it making a meal out of people, I guess, is probably more <laughs> accurate. But I just, if it made me very tired, this, and there are lots of action sequences, which if someone described them to you in the context of, of a Jurassic World film, like there's a there's a thing with raptors and motorbikes, which, you know, works on a technical level, but you're not really invested in it because the character work on in this really isn't there. Like it speaks volumes that every time I discuss looks it up, Claire Deering and Owen Grady. I have to look up their fucking names because I just don't remember them because they're so catastrophically bland. And while the characters from the original film are obviously much more standout, much more memorable, you know, they don't get anything super worthwhile to do in this. There's an awful lot of kind of deus ex raptor here where, you know, people are in peril and then just survive for reasons. Not because they're particularly skilled or brilliant, but because the script requires them to. And... There is spectacle here. There is spectacle here. And some of the stuff starts to look very impressive. There's a wonderful mix of CGI. There's a lot of practical stuff in here. And there's even a dinosaur that I thought was extremely cool in this. I'm not going to describe it, but there is a dinosaur in here that I think is something we've genuinely never seen before. And when it first arrived in a very particularly tense scene, I was like, oh, okay, now we're moving. Now we're cooking. And there's so little that that dinosaur does during the rest of the film that I thought was a horrible missed opportunity. I'm sure we're getting more into this in the spoiler special, but I think had they based the film much more around that dinosaur, we'd have had a lot more fun with this. But yeah, so my main thing with this, this is a this is a film which a lot of money has been spent on. It's a long film; it's nearly two and a half hours long. It feels a little bit like a compilation tape, like the greatest hits of Jurassic Park, uh, Jurassic's past, Jurassic's Park past, uh, and it feels like they hit those notes. And it's fine if you're doing kind of slight nods, I think, for for the sake of nostalgia, that's fine. But when it feels like you're repeating sequences wholesale and not really advancing them in any way, it just feels a little bit lazy. So. Yeah, really disappointed, actually. Really disappointed by the lack of the colon, really disappointed by the lack of anything new. I mostly agree with what you're saying. I think I liked it a little bit more than you because Goldblum was on good form. He <laughs> was. Very, 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 very when they remember that he's in the film. And, <laughs> <laughs> and there were a couple of sequences which I did enjoy. I think there's a Malta chase sequence, which I think is uh, pretty impressive as far as those things go. But yeah, we were talking about Prey earlier, and we were talking about the sense of dread that that Mm. trailer made you feel. At no point are you under any illusion that anybody you're rooting for in Jurassic (laughs) World Dominion is in any danger of even losing a limb, which is insane to me because Chris Pratt has his right arm extended to do that whole (laughs) whole dinosaur back thing. It's just dangling there, and over the course of three movies, no dinosaur chomped it off. What is going on? (laughs) Like, come on! So that was the main thing to me. It's just like, when when you implicitly know that nothing really bad is going to happen, it just drains the tension out of what are some inventively crafted uh, sequences. Like there's one bit where Bryce does how is Claire's trying to sort of evade the dinosaur and basically it involves her going underwater, which is actually put together really well and acted really well. But because you knew that no, nothing really bad is going to happen here. It's just like, okay, it drains a lot of the tension and the fear that you want to be feeling 
from a scene like that from from the movie. Um, and yeah, you're, you're you're absolutely right in that it reverts to um, what has come before rather than charting something new, which is insane because they uh, teased it and you know had a roadmap to it at the end of the last movie with the dinosaurs joining the world. Um, so yeah, I, I'm under no, I, I don't think that this is going to be the last Jurassic World movie. I think we're, maybe not Jurassic World, but I think we're going to go back to this franchise in the next decade or so. I would not be surprised if they announce something. Do you remember the Battle at Big Rock short? Uh, short you know, yes. the one with the with the cameras. That's what I wanted this film to be. Like that, yeah. that felt like that was the perfect way of doing. Not obviously not set in a caravan park, but mm. but that dinosaurs in the world premise, that promise of something new and exciting and different. And I just the, the choice to go back to the same formula they've used for all the other films just makes no sense to me whatsoever. Like See, none. That's interesting because I think it doesn't for the longest time, and. It's going to be very intriguing to see how people react to this movie because it tries at least for the first hour and a half to do something that we've never seen before, which is completely unexpected, which is basically a Jason Bourne-esque geopolitical thriller that, (laughs) (laughs) that, you know, trots the globe and now and again has a dinosaur in it. But basically you're watching... I did not expect, not to give too much away, we'll we'll do a spoiler special on this, I did not expect the Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum side of this movie to be about industrial espionage, for example. Uh, and so it's trying something new. And I, and I feel in a weird way, it may be the last Jurassic World movie, but I think they're setting up something bigger, uh, as in something different. I think they're setting up a, 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 an evolution, if you will, for the franchise, in that they're taking it almost into the realms of the Fast and the Furious movies. And this might be, if we look back 10 years from now, when it's dinosaurs in space and talking dinosaurs on the moon... <laughs> We might look back at this as the kind of the the blast of nitrous oxide that took the franchise from what it was into what it now is in the way the Fast Five did. Fast Five suddenly became something completely different. Uh, and since then, that franchise has become increasingly bigger and increasingly stupider. And I wonder if they might be doing the same thing with this movie, because it's not a Jurassic Park movie for the first hour and a half. But it becomes an incredibly by-the-numbers Jurassic Park movie yeah. by the second half. And therein, I think, lies the problem. I kind of get what you're saying, but still you sort of, you know, saying Fast Five and comparing it to this movie. I know, I'm taking something that's a pinnacle of human existence, Fast Five. I know, I know. This is what I'm saying. This is not Fast Five. I'm not not comparing it in terms of quality. And this is a very strange sentence to say. In terms of quality, it's not comparable to Fast Five. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's a strange sentence to say. Uh, But I'm, you know, I applaud that they tried something new. I applaud that they, they, they're, they're trying something new. Uh, how successful that is, is up for debate. It's really funny that that's your take on it, because that's the complete opposite of my... I get what you're saying, that there is a kind of James Bondy element to the first mm-hmm. half of this movie, but it feels like that's still all set up, and it's a little bit half-formed. And it only really kind of hits its stride in terms of you feel like they really commit when they fall back on the same thing that they've been doing since this franchise was born, mm-hmm. uh, B-O-U-R-N-E. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. I, I just don't know quite what that was again i always i go back to that short i will go back to that short every time that short for me that was promise and when trevorrow came to the the live podcast and he showed yeah. us that short and i was like oh my god i could not be more excited to see this film like this is the promise that was made and i think that for me at least was the promise that was broken because i mm. felt that they tried something new at the beginning and then went back to the greatest hits package mm. and that's 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 not what i needed it's not what i wanted i will say this even though the characters are very thinly written 
I think the Wonder Wise and Mamadou Ati did a pretty good job with what they were giving and managed to squeeze some juice out of those characters. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that yeah. as well. Uh, so we gave us one three stars. Three stars then for Jurassic World Dominion, and there will be a spoiler special. I recorded a, a fairly lengthy interview with Colin Trevorrow, the film's co-writer and director, and it's a long and fascinating chat. Uh, so yes, that'll be out in about three weeks' time after the movie comes out this weekend. Uh, and in fact, our Top Gun Maverick spoiler special will be out next week. We have yet to record our half of it, but we're going to be doing so. So if you have any questions for that, any questions or comments, then slide into my DMs uh, for Top Gun Maverick. But three stars in for Jurassic World Dominion. Next up, let's talk about Uruk here. Let's talk about Swan Song. Amon. Yes, so Swan Song, this is the semi-fictionalized tale of... Mr. Pat Pitzenberger, who is played by Udo Kier, uh, he escapes to his Ohio nursing home in order to fulfill one last request, which is styling the hair of a former client for her funeral. And this is really all about Udo Kier. Uh, it's a fantastic performance from him. Uh, it's a very rare leading role from him, and it gives him the chance to play uh, notes that he hasn't sort of that he doesn't often get to play within the body of one film. Uh, he gets to be campy. There's a scene where he's... Uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even going to explain how this exactly works and what it takes to get him here, but he's wearing a chandelier as he's dancing on the dance floor. It's, it's very, very entertaining. It, it works. Um, so yeah, there's, it gets, gets to be campy, gets to be tender, gets to be earnest. It's a really, really fantastic performance. I love the art that he goes on in this film in terms of reflecting on his life and kind of making amends and you know healing the grudge that he held for this former client. Um, I really like what they do with that. So yeah, um, and also the way in which they position him as a sort of an elder statesman of the gay community and bridge um, the present with the past and in, in terms of how things have changed from his day is also very, very mm. good and very, very affecting. Yeah. Um, and you can tell Todd Stevens's love for this uh, real-life person, Todd Stevens is the writer-director of this movie, his affection for the real-life Pat really comes through in the film as well. I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, so did I. There's a lovely scene where he, uh, Pat and a friend of his, who obviously, you know, had very difficult pasts coming out as gay men in a mm -hmm. what I'd imagine would be a fairly closed-minded, you know, not even, probably not even fairly homophobic town, um, but they were out and they were, and they were out and proud and, uh, you know, but nevertheless, they must've gone through all sorts of, of, of hellish abuse and, and homophobia. And I watched the two young gay dads play with their son in a park. And they, there's just like, there's a little moment where they're looking at it going, what are, what are we watching? What is this? What are we seeing? You know, look how far we've come. So there, there are lovely moments all the way through this. And Uruk here is fantastic as he always is. In everything, mm -hmm. but you know, finally being given the chance to lead a film and to craft a character that you stay with, it must have been really an unusual experience for him to be on a film for more than five days in recent <laughs> years. Uh, and he's great, he's great, he's cantankerous but lovable, he's got some fantastic one liners, and uh, and Pat is a very, very singular presence. Yeah, I thought this was terrific. Uh, we gave it three stars, but um, I'm probably I'm probably a little bit more up on it than that. I'd probably go four. It's a very, very intimate and gentle drama with some comedic moments, um, and it, it'll move you as well, I think. 
I do agree, Chris. That is the film I would go four stars on. All right, let's fucking get into it then. So unless the next film is <laughs> Hustle. Hustle, which uh, stars Adam Sandler in one of his... <coughs> bloody hell, just the, just the mere mention of the name Adam Sandler sends <laughs> Amon into furious coughing. <laughs> I love me some Sandman. Yes. Well, as you know, I'm a, I'm a big Adam Sandler fan. Uh, but this is one of his, uh, yeah, not rare, but he, you know, this is a this is a more dramatic outing for Adam Sandler uh, on on Netflix, one of his Netflix movies. This is the first film he's made since uh, Who Be Halloween. Obviously, we know that Murder Mystery Two is is has been shot and has been completed, and we're just waiting for it to drop any day now. Please, God! Oh my God! The Murder Mystery Two is so exciting. Others are not. But this is <laughs> this is a more serious movie. This is a, a movie in which he plays Stanley Sugarman, who is a scout, a basketball scout for the Philadelphia 76ers. and he is essentially tasked with an impossible task: finding someone that they can incorporate draft into their team. Uh, who will tear up the NBA. And he is at the end of a very, very long, very, very long life, trudging all over the world, looking for talent. And he really doesn't want to do this anymore. He's been missed. He's missed his daughter's last nine birthdays. Uh, his wife, played by Queen Latifah, is very understanding, but also kind of coming to the end of her tether. And quite frankly, he hasn't made as much of himself as he could do. So this is his one last shot of glory. Can he find someone? Well, yes, he can, because this is a sports movie. And if he didn't find someone, it'd be a bit of a surprise. He finds a young kid by called Bo Cruz in Spain. Bilbao, isn't it, Amon? I think they go to Bilbao, if I'm right in thinking. I would have to double check that, but let's say yes. All right. I thought for some reason I thought it was Bilbao rather than say you know Madrid or Barcelona. I've just I've, I've, I'm, if I'm wrong on that, then I apologize. But I think it is Bilbao, and he finds this this young kid Bo Cruz who is incredible. But then can he get him back to America and can he get him a shot at the big leagues? Amon gave this one three stars. Why did you give it three? I know you're a big basketball fan. I would have thought that that meant, meant you would be more predisposed towards this movie because uh, because it's it really goes all in for what seems to me uh, like a big old dose of authenticity. It's produced by LeBron James. It's got loads of cameos from NBA legends, past and present. So, mm-hmm. what was your deal with it? What was your? What, what, come on, yeah. I want answers. <laughs> okay, I had a four star time watching this film, but I couldn't justify giving it. Th- more than three because of its formulaic storytelling. That is essentially where I fall down this because all the standard sports movie tropes are really checked off uh, in this film. And granted, they're checked off well because, you know, it's a formula for a reason and it works. And they proved that it works again because all the multiple training montages that they do and the speeches about pushing through adversity, all of that stuff works. But it is still formulaic. And like, as I mentioned in my review, even in uh, the final act, I thought they were going to try and do something different. And I was like, oh, this is really, really interesting. And then they fall back on the crowd-pleasing, formulaic stuff, which I just wish it didn't. Because if it had something more to it in that regard, then I would have pushed it to four stars happily. But I agree with you in that all the sports stuff is great. I love all the cameos from NBA stars, which really lend the authenticity. You got Dr. J, you got Alan Iverson, you got Kenny the Jet Smith, who was a former NBA player, is now an NBA analyst, actually playing a character in terms of the um, agent who is helping 
uh, Adam Sandler's character out uh, throughout the course of this film. Uh, so, and, and he's actually pretty good as an actor, surprisingly. Uh, so I like that. I even liked, um, you know, Anthony Edwards, who is a current NBA player. He sort of plays Bo Cruz's nemesis uh, in this film. But again, they dropped the ball on his arc at the end, which was a little bit annoying. But the trash talk that he engages in has by turns funny and <laughs> it's, it's, it's both funny and it also adds tension mm. to Bo Cruz's arc. And I, I enjoyed that too. And the basketball itself, the love of the game, you can really feel mm-hmm. it uh, on the court, whether it's on the street ball or in the actual arenas um, or even just in the culture and how he shoots that. This is set sort of obviously in Philadelphia. And there's a couple of murals at one point that we see of past NBA legends, which are really, really cool. Mm. So all of that comes through the screen and Adam Sandler is on form. He's engaged. Mm-hmm. I really like the bromance that he has with Juancho Hernan Gomez, who plays Bo Cruz. Juancho Hernan Gomez is actually a current NBA player for the Utah Jazz right now. So obviously on the on the court, he's fantastic. And he has that naivety um, that he brings to Bo Cruz, which perfectly suits um, him as an actor because this is his uh, acting debut but also the character as well so I liked all of that stuff it just needed a little bit more than the formula uh, sports movie trophy storytelling sorry. for me to push it to four no, stars that's no. all that's all I'm sorry. saying. You've, 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 you've just sat there for the last five minutes and talked about how this is a four-star film and then for <laughs> utterly arbitrary reasons have given it three. It that is spurious an nonsense reason. and I hereby decry this review. Uh, this is a four-star oh. film. It is absolutely nailed on a four-star film. It is as good a sports movie as you will find that's not a Creed film. See, 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 but, 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 that, 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 that was the other thing. I couldn't put it with the Creed. I couldn't put it with the love and basketballs. I couldn't put it with the other four to five star sports movies that we've had because it's not on that level. I'm sorry. As as much as I really, really enjoyed it, it's not on it that level. It is not an accident that this is a, it's a bold move to set a sports movie in which a man is basically forcing someone to run up a hill uh, <laughs> and do a training montage through the streets of Philadelphia. It's a bold move to set a sports movie in the streets of Philadelphia when you have Rocky <laughs> and Creed yep. uh, and it's not as good as those movies I will grant you that but I think that both of those films are five star films and you know are, are, are fantastic and as good as sports movies get but it, you know I think this is a, a very very solid and respectable next level down yeah, is, is it, uh, yes. that Sol- I had solid, a yeah. great great time with it is I agree. Sandler is so likable in this movie <laughs> He is funnier in this film than he has been in some, because you know, as much as I love The Sandman, he has made some truly dreadful comedies over the years. Uh, he is yep. funnier in this film, which isn't a comedy, than he is in some of his films like Grown Ups and Grown Ups 2 and, and whatnot. Um, but he is, you plug into him, you plug into Bo Cruz, Queen Latifah is great as his wife, doesn't get a lot to do, as is the way with, with movies like this. But, you know, they have such a lovely, warm, lived-in relationship that you can really feel the years that they've gone through mm-hmm. together. Uh, and it's, you know, honestly, if <laughs> we'll never do this because no one else at Empire likes Adam Sandler. But if we were ever to do an Adam Sandler ranking, this would absolutely <laughs> be in my top five uh, Adam Sandler films. Top yeah. five? Yeah. What? Yeah. Why are you saying like as if it's, oh, wow. you know, as if people, honestly, <laughs> there would be people at Empire who would struggle to put together a top four. So even putting like, so, but I am not in that camp. Uh, but you know, certainly, certainly top ten, maybe top five is a bit much. But yeah, you know, yeah, top top ten, okay, top yeah. five. Um, but yeah, now I 
I'm just looking at, you know, the best basketball movies that we've yeah. had. It's not on the level of Coach Carter. It's, it's no not on the level no of Love and Basketball. It's not on the level of He Got Game. Agreed. It's not on the level of White Man. It's not on the level of White Man Can't Jump. Ooh. It's not on the level of Above the Rim. These are all four to five star movies, and I just couldn't put Hustle up there in, in with that. Do you like Finding the Way Back, the Ben Affleck movie that came out last year? I did. Yeah. So that, that was, was solid, solid as well. See, these movie. are solid yeah. movies for me, and for for me, if you yeah. know, I had a great time watching it. I really, really liked the characters. Yes, it's a little bit predictable. Uh, you can time your, you can set your watch to some of the plot developments in this movie, but that's fine if you're buying into the characters. And for me, I did, mm-hmm. and I think uh, I think a lot of people are going to be pleasantly surprised by this uh, when they when they they put it on Netflix over the weekend uh, because that's where it is. That's where it is. It lives on Netflix. Adam Sandler pretty much lives on Netflix these days. Chris, would you would you accept a three point nine out of five? And then you run up to four, I'm on. <laughs> yeah, that's just that's just math, yeah. Simon. You can't gone for a three pointer. When what you should have done is something that is is not possible, and gone for a four pointer. <laughs> it's not. Uh, isn't a four not, pointer like you do in NBA Jam, where the ball literally bursts into yes. flames? That's that's what it that is. It is possible to get a four point um, of of a one of a one possession if you get fouled as you shoot a three pointer. It goes in, and then you go to the free throw line to make the four point play. <laughs> But, but, that, but that's, that's, the, that's only the only way. way. So it's a bit like in snooker. The highest break in snooker isn't actually one four seven. The highest break in snooker is technically one five five because if you uh, if your opponent uh, makes a foul before no reds have been potted and you are but you can't see a red to pot, you can take a free ball and a free ball and a black will give you an extra eight points. So therefore, you could score one five five, not one four seven. So technicalities, technicalities. The worst, the worst anecdote you've it's ever not an anecdote. It's, it's a fact. It's a fact that will enhance your life. And you know what else will enhance your life? Watching Hustle on Netflix this weekend because oh we gave it. 18 stars, 18 stars right. for Hustle. And we're going to finish off with another movie you can watch on your Silverplex this weekend, which is Karen Gillan in Duel. D-U-A-L, not D-U-E-L, not the Steven Spielberg movie. Uh, Karen Gillan yes. and Karen Gillan, Jimbo. Uh, this, this is a weird one to do in the week where we're actually uh, reviewing Swan Song because this has a lot of DNA in common with the other Swan Song, Benjamin Cleary's film, which came out last year. <laughs> yeah. uh, although, whereas that is kind of Mahershala Ali and this very sort of bittersweet, very emotionally raw story of a guy dealing with his own mortality and commissioning a clone to carry on after he's gone, this takes a, shall we say, very different tonal path. So... The broad plot for this is that Karen Gillan plays Sarah. Sarah finds out that she's dying, and so she commissions a clone who will continue her life after she dies. Uh, unfortunately, it turns out that she goes into full remission and then isn't going to die. But in this society, when cloning is actually very common, if this happens, the clone and the original must then fight to the death in a televised duel uh, for the masses. So that gives you an idea of kind of the tone of this a little bit, except it kind of doesn't. And I think... <laughs> I don't think anything can really prepare you for this unless you've seen other Riley Stern's films. So, I mean, look, if you've if you've seen his work, if you've if you've sat through Faults or specifically the art of self-defense, you'll kind of know what you're in for here. If you haven't, then you're in for a ride. So Stern's has a very particular way of writing and a very particular way of asking his cast to uh take on the role. So he goes for this incredibly deadpan stoic, completely leached of emotion, almost Spock-like performances from people. And he it's something that just appeals to him. And the way he's described it in the past is that it just it suits his writing style. Because he writes, uh, his dialogue is sort of heavy with absurdity. And he says if people deliver his dialogue the way people actually speak, it just wouldn't be funny. It's funny, absolutely deadpan. So the delivery, I think, will 
maybe sit a little bit oddly with people because this whole film is incredibly cynical and incredibly nihilistic and monumentally bleak but also really funny so it's a really really strange thing to kind of describe so the way this works it takes place in this society it's a very um so it's the whole thing was shot during the pandemic so it was actually shot all in finland but finland, it has this very finland, scandinavian finland. It's the place where you want to be. And, uh, you know, it's a very sort of bleached, very stark Scandinavian feel. The performances are completely bleached of emotion. Uh, and on top of that, you've got sort of these incredibly static cameras as well. So there's really low energy, sort of no movement really to the shots and long periods of silence. So it's very, very minimalist. But because of that, it kind of lets you sort of roll into this idea that this is a society where everyone is depressed, everyone is bored, there's no reason to live. Like, she's diagnosed with the terminal disease, she doesn't care. Like, she's probably just thinking, eh, fine, you know, she was miserable anyway. There's a bit where she has the most low-energy wank you will ever see on screen. That's something to behold. Um, <laughs> and... The film takes, I think, a lot of unexpected turns. He has a tendency to sort of like zig when you think he's going to zag, uh, and he goes in unusual, normally slightly anticlimactic directions, deliberately so. So it's a it's a very strange film, and he's definitely not going to beat for everyone. I think it mm. will it will freak a lot of people out, and it will weird a lot of people out, and some people just will not get on with the tone at all. But there's a real satire in here about kind of where we are as a society, about sort of self image, you know, about entertainment, about mortality. So there's there's a lot of sort of I would say fun to be had. I'm not sure I'd quite call it fun. It's it's the comedy of depression. And if the idea of that sort of appeals to you, then you might like this film. If it doesn't, then your mileage may vary. But it's, I mean, it's it's fascinating. Like It's it's yeah. a really interesting little film, but it's also a very weird one and it's deeply it surreal. Is, and it's not the movie I think has been marketed. Not, the, not that it's been marketed very well no, in this country because it's yet another one of those movies that has just kind of snuck out there on Sky. Uh, that's yeah. kind of where it's been dumped. It debuted at Sundance, I think, earlier on in the year and got loads of great reviews. So I was hoping it might get a cinematic release and a bit of a bit of mm. pomp and ceremony surrounding its release. Uh, that has sadly not been the case. And there's another movie that's had that uh, experience, which is the new Jerry Butler movie. And in fact, Disney are doing this a little bit as well. They're they're releasing some movies on 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 Disney Plus that I haven't that, that haven't really had any fanfare. Uh, there's the 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 movie Fire Island, which I haven't yet had a chance to watch. So hopefully we'll get a chance to review those movies over the next couple next couple of weeks. But uh, it's been kind of dumped on Sky, uh, and when you when it comes up on the Sky Carousel, it looks like you're going to get a either a fun kind of body swap comedy with Karen Gillan or some sort of action packed no. thriller with Karen Gillan, and you get neither of no. those. <laughs> But what you do get is really interesting and um, absorbing. Mm, and she's she's great in it. I think especially the scenes where it's her playing opposite her what, the character known as Sarah's double. Uh, th those conversations are just wonderful. Uh, and she has a lot of fun with Aaron Paul, who steps in as this kind of like coach who trains her over the course of twelve months to murder her clone. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's bizarre. And he will send her home again, incredibly deadpan, to watch really shitty pirate copies of insane kind of insanely violent shit straight to video films and she just sits there dispassionately watching a guy having his arm mangled in a waste disposal unit and stuff to try and desensitize her to, to what she's going to have to do it's, it's a very strange film it's very strange uh, i don't believe we have a, an official empire review of this so jimbo what would you what would you give it i'd give it three like it it, it definitely it aims it, it, you know it's a big swing mm. i think it succeeds to an extent but equally not doesn't quite get where it wants to be like it, it makes it makes some interesting observations and i like the stylistic choices that they make but i don't think it's quite into four-star territory 
All right. For once, I'm not going to add an extra star to that, unlike with Swan Song and unlike with Hustle. <laughs> uh, I think that this is a three stars. So three stars. Let's go three stars. Three stars then for Duel. It is on Sky and Now TV right now. And on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by Emma Thompson. Blimey. Ooh. Yes, indeed. Emma Thompson yeah. and her co-star... Daryl McCormack, who are fantastic together in the wonderful Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. And that's our star-studded duo for next week. Very, very exciting indeed. But hey, listen, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is time to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning, squadcast names, every day I'm hustling to give an Adam Sandler movie one star less than it deserves, <laughs> Amon Warman. Every day I'm hustling. Every day I'm hustling. You guys What's have Of course we do. Rick of course we do. <laughs> big, big fans of that song. Peace. Peace be unto you, my friend. It is goodbye from Dyrosaurus Nerbifore. <laughs> that is me. Uh, you'll notice something, Chris, that I have now gone on an entire podcast without even mentioning the podcast. So I think we should rectify that immediately by saying the next episode, which drops on Monday, will have guest from the show, which is very, very good. Also, we're going to have... So that's pretty exciting too. And it's goodbye for me, Fast and Furious Dom Onion, because Jurassic World is trying to do what the Fast and Furious movies did. And also, I just like the idea of Dom Toretto with a big onion. I just like that. It makes me laugh. Uh, anyway, I'm off to start putting together my Adam Sandler top 10 for the Adam Sandler <laughs> ranking. Oh, yes. Now, do I put Grown Ups 2 at number three or number four I can't, where, can't quite where, figure it out where are you going to rank Murder Mystery I think it's the biggest Murder question. Mystery would be top 10 <laughs> for sure but I, I don't know exactly where it would be it's a very interesting exercise and one I actually may well do we shall see anyway <laughs> listen you either die a happy Gilmore or you live long enough to see yourself become the Chubbs Peterson thanks for listening see you next time bye bye